Welcome to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. Here's your host, the Bitcoin Boomer himself, Gary Leland. Hello, I'm Gary Leland, also known as the Bitcoin Boomer. And welcome to the Bitcoin Boomer Show, brought to you from the Biz TV studios in beautiful Arlington, Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth, but Texas is all that matters. Now in this show, I try to bring you information about Bitcoin. I want to help educate you about Bitcoin. I want you to learn about Bitcoin. I actually want you to invest in Bitcoin, but I don't sell Bitcoin. This is not, I repeat, not an infomercial where I'm going to at the end try to sell you some Bitcoin. I don't sell my Bitcoin. I only buy Bitcoin and I hold my Bitcoin. I don't even spend my Bitcoin actually. See, I'm a big believer in Bitcoin and I believe Bitcoin can change the future of the world. I believe Bitcoin can become the world currency. And right now, maybe 3% of the world's population even own any Bitcoin. So everybody who's buying Bitcoin to this day is still an early investor in Bitcoin. In other words, they're getting into Bitcoin early. And I want to give you information so you can decide whether you want to get into Bitcoin or not. Or maybe you'll just use this information You'll be by a water cooler at work, or you'll be talking to some friends, and someone will bring up Bitcoin, and you will know enough information to join the conversation and add some information to the conversation. You know, maybe this show will inspire you to watch YouTube videos, listen to podcasts, or read more books on Bitcoin. And in doing so, maybe, just maybe, you'll decide that it's time to invest in Bitcoin. Now, on today's show, we bring you Nick Baccia. Now, Nick Baccia is, wrote the book Layered Money, but he's also the adjunct professor of finance at USC Marshall. Now, I've just finished reading Nick's book last week, and this is a great book. That's why I asked Nick to come on the show. He goes over money, where it came from, uh, how it got on the gold standard, how it got off the gold standard, um, all these things, the Fed, everything's covered in this book. And we're going to try to cover as much of that as we can on this show. So if you want to learn a little bit about Bitcoin, just increase that old noggin up there, the information in it, with good information, by the way, then stay tuned for Nick Baccia, who's going to give you a great, great show. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsor, and like I said, with Nick Baccia. Okay, guys, this is Gary Leland, the Bitcoin Boomer, and you need to come here if you want to find out what Bitcoin is, if you want to just meet some great people and have a great time, come to BitBlockBoom. But there's one thing, you have to be a Bitcoiner. We don't allow shitcoiners. Last week in August, every year, moving to Austin. Yeah, I love coming to BitBlockBoom because it's like, it's like Mecca for Bitcoiners. Like, everybody here is like part of the hardcore, like, inner sanctum. Um, you just have these conversations with everybody where like you can see it in their eyes that they believe the same things that you believe. You come to Bitblock Boom once, you're going to come every year. Speakers are great, the networking is great, because you know, that's really what it's about when you're uh, a Bitcoiner, especially when you're a new Bitcoiner, is you want to network with as many Bitcoiners as you can, learn, 
because there's so much information, not only about Bitcoin, but about money in general. Hey, so I'm down here at BitBlock Boom, and what energy, what a lot of fun. It's all Bitcoiners and uh, just good people. That's the one thing that, that all my interactions that I've had with people, you can tell you're just dealing with a culture of people that just want to make the world a better place. So if you want to come to a Bitcoiner conference, not a crypto conference or a shitcoiner conference, if you want to come to a Bitcoin conference, you would come to Bitblock Boom. But like I said, don't even mess with it. Don't even think about it. Don't even attempt to buy a ticket if you're a shitcoiner because your money's going to come back and you'll just make us both work. But if you're a Bitcoiner, you need to sign up and come to Austin now. Come to Bitblock Boom. Welcome back. I'm Gary Leland, and this is the Bitcoin Boomer Show. Now, before we get into today's show, I do want to tell you about an event I put on every year in Austin, Texas. It's called BitBlock Boom. That's right, BitBlock Boom. It's one of the only, if not the only, Bitcoin-only conference in the world. There's a lot of onlys there. But we talk about Bitcoin every year at this conference, and that's all we talk about. Um, it's the last weekend in August. I'll make this quick and just say go to the website bitblockboom.com to find out more information on this great conference. This is our fifth year. And one of our guests this year, or one of our speakers, is Nick Baccia. Nick is a professor of finance at USC Marshall and the author of the book, Layered Money. Nick, welcome to the show. First time on the show, I believe. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Gary. Great to see you and very excited for Austin in August. Yeah, we're going to have a good time down there. But we're here to talk about Bitcoin and your book because your book, actually, I told everybody earlier, I just finished reading it and it's a great book. It's a really great book. You, uh, you cover more than just Bitcoin, though, which is what I like. You go into a subject that I find very interesting, money. You go into money, you go into history of money, how things developed, um, what all, how it affects us today, how Bitcoin is going to change all that. Um, before we go into any of that, please give everybody a little uh, bio or history or a rundown on Nick Baccia and who Nick is. Sure, Gary. So I come from the asset management world, investment management. I studied economics and finance in school. And when I was in the asset management industry, my specialty was in fixed income. So I was a bond trader, uh, U.S. Treasury specifically. And as a U.S. Treasuries trader, I studied the Fed very deeply for many years and uh, the monetary system and how money works and how uh, the global economy works. And that has really become my passion over my career. And somewhere uh, along the line there, uh, as I was a trader, I started to discover Bitcoin and dive down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. This was in 2016. And I started writing about Bitcoin in 2018 and then eventually got just got bitten by the Bitcoin bug, uh, undeniably, and left my job as a bond trader to pursue a career uh, in writing and researching Bitcoin. And that's when I decided to write Layered Money. Well, you've had, um, it's a successful book and a great book. And are you writing another book? Did I see that somewhere that you're working on another books uh, coming out some someday? 
I'm not trying to give out any inside scoop, but I think I saw you post it or somewhere, so it must be public knowledge. I so I did I did post that I'm uh, working on a second book, and the the interesting thing about writing a book is that um, it's very hard to set a target date or a deadline for yourself. So I am in the research process of a second book, but I the research is it looks like it's going to take a long time. And so what I'll say to my readers is that I'm working on it, but uh, to think that it might come out next year might be a little bit premature. So um, I'm focused on writing. Um, I'm writing a Substack publication right now called The Bitcoin Layer. And uh, people can go subscribe to that at thebitcoinlayer.substack.com. And I'm writing you know, once a week about Bitcoin and global macro. And I think that over time, the content that I'm writing there will make its way into a second book or help me form some of the ideas for that second book. But right now, I'm just focused on writing and researching, and we'll see how that all unfolds with book number two. But I'm excited to one day uh, give the readers a second book for sure. Well, if it's like your first book, um, Layered Money, it's a lot of research is going into that book. This this book, I can tell everyone, it's not just him spitting out his opinions. This is information, like a, a history book. But how did you actually, though, uh, get orange-pilled out of curiosity? What was your Bitcoin moment that all of a sudden, how did you learn about Bitcoin and understand it? Yeah, so I, as a reader of um, Zero Hedge and other financial blogs and media during the 2010s, um, I saw the word Bitcoin quite often, uh, 2013, 14, 15, but I ignored it as someone that was trying to focus on the Fed and the monetary system. And Bitcoin didn't seem to really hit my radar um, in any significant way. Then at a certain point, 2016, I started seeing the word more. I started seeing the word blockchain a lot. And curiosity just got the better of me. And I said, I have to understand what is blockchain? What is Bitcoin? What does this thing mean? And uh, you know, I found uh, important and informative podcasts and YouTube videos in the early days like Trace Mayer and Adam Back and Andreas Antonopoulos and Tor Demeester. So those were four names that I would say I found uh, early on in my Bitcoin journey and helped me learn about it. And then once I read Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos, you know, some of it went over my head as a computer science textbook, but much of it really um, shook me to the core and resonated. Uh, you know, you get that feeling in your body where your body is telling you that this is something that's very important. And I got that feeling when reading about Bitcoin 2016. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I just became completely obsessed with it. Yeah, I, I always say that exact statement. Bitcoin is very hard to see. But once you see it, you, you can't unsee it. I don't know how many times I've said that. Now, one question I do ask everybody on this show is in their definition or their description or in their words, however you want to say it, what is Bitcoin? So what is Bitcoin, Nick? Bitcoin is a software, and it's also the monetary unit within that software. And so it's, an, it's, it's a software that has a money attached to it. And that software has certain rules, and those rules have become so valued by the market 
that the unit within that software is in total worth one half of $1 trillion today and was actually above a trillion dollars at some point last year. So um, that's all it is. It's a software and a monetary unit within the software. And the software is pretty special. Well, it's, it's absolutely special. And it is software, computer code, whatever you want to call it. And a lot of people don't seem to understand uh, that. I, I've, you know, the thing that got me interested in Bitcoin, because I was uh, I started building e-commerce sites back in, well, I tried to build my first one in 95, but I couldn't figure out how to make that shopping cart work. You couldn't buy shopping carts back then and plug them in. So uh, in 2000 or 1996, I finally did it. And so I'd been in the internet a long time and I heard someone talking about it as the protocol, the, the only protocol that was missing for the internet was a protocol for money. And when I started hearing internet protocols, that interested me because everybody else had said to me, it's like online stocks. I think a lot of people get thrown off on this. People will relate to it like stocks. They'll ask me how many shares of Bitcoin I have. Uh, I think that people need to quit using that term or we need to get people out of thinking uh, stocks. Absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a, it is a common thing that I hear people say, well, what's the stock price of Bitcoin right now? Or, uh, you know, what is one share of Bitcoin worth? And, you know, that isn't the that isn't the best metaphor or analogy or comparison for Bitcoin or words to, you know, label it. Um, it is a commodity. It's not an equity. And it is a protocol and not a company. And one of the things that I use, Gary, to teach people about Bitcoin that don't know about it is I explain the four protocols that they use already today that they're familiar with. So TCP, IP are two protocols that they use to connect to the internet. HTTP is a protocol that they use to surf the web. And SMTP is the protocol they use to send email. And so I love the email analogy, SMTP, because not only is SMTP a protocol, but we can also understand that Google uses SMTP for Gmail and Yahoo uses SMTP for Yahoo Mail. So we can see that it's a protocol stack where companies can build software using the protocol and that everyone uses the same protocol, even though you, you might have Gmail and I might have Hotmail or something like that. That's, and that's a very so, good point. And then one more thing about email is that it's send and receive. It's a hard break right now. Let's finish that after the break. Show. I'm Gary Leland, the Bitcoin Boomer, joined by Nick Baccia. Let's go back over that. Let's start with the four protocols again real quick. Real quick on the first two and then get into the last two. Sorry about that. No, no, no problem. And so, yes, TCP IP is what we use to, act, to access the internet, right? I mean, that's what our computers use, the protocols that we use to connect to this internet protocol and send data to and from each other. Now, HTTP, the P in HTTP is for protocol. That's the protocol we use to surf the web. So we use www. And then once we're in that realm, we're using the HTTP protocol. So SMTP is called Simple Mail Transfer Protocol. That's what Gmail uses. It's what Hotmail uses, what Yahoo uses. All Outlook, all of these companies, Microsoft, Google, 
they're using SMTP because that is the messaging protocol that we decided to use as a globe decades ago for email. Now, email isn't the only method of messaging that we use on the internet, but it is the dominant one. And it's also the one that um, is the most global in nature. Bitcoin is similar to email in that it's a protocol layer that other people and companies can use to send value to each other via the same sort of send and receive mechanism that we have for email. So when I send you an email, Gary, I'm sending it to your address. But only you have the password to read the emails that were sent to that address. Bitcoin works in a very similar way in the basics. You give me your address and I can send you Bitcoin to that address, but only you have the private key, the equivalent of the password, to spend that money. And so email is a really, really good analogy metaphor for Bitcoin in terms of understanding that it's a protocol. Companies can use it. It's global in nature. And it works with a send and receive mechanism. So, um, yeah, that's those are very good points. And that is a good uh, comparison is email uh, on how it works, because it is. You have a password, you have an account, you can give people your address, your email address, like you can give me your Bitcoin address, but you have the password and no one else can go in there. So I always tell people, I don't see a lot of people probably trying to hack in, come in your house and hack your computer for your small amount of Bitcoin when there's so many honeypots out there that it's safer than they think. Um, I want to go into money, though, right now. I want to go into money because I find that topic really interesting. I want to go back to the beginnings of money. Let's talk about money. And I'm talking the beginnings of money, how it started, and, and go through from wherever you think would be the best place to start as long as you want to go through this, because I want to cover money real quick. I don't think a lot of people understand what money is and where it came from and what the purpose of it is and what is happening to our money. So let's start working in that area. So with layered money, my goal was to write a history of money, but I had to decide where to start the story. So there are a few books that are brilliant in their explanation of money and how you know money has evolved over time. One of those books is The Ascent of Money by Niall Ferguson. Another book that's about anthropology and just human history that I know many people have read is Sapiens. Um, and a, one of the greatest pieces ever written on money is Nick Sabo's um, Origins um, piece where he describes how money evolved over time. So there are a there's a lot of content on the history of money. I wanted to start the story at a place where it was unique. So I, what I decided to do was not cover money when it was feathers and pebbles and, um, you know, those sort of beads, those sort of tokens of money that ancient humans used. I also didn't want to start with gold and silver and precious metals because that goes back several thousand years as well, where, you know, I'd have to do research into how the ancient Egyptians used gold or why they came up with it. So what I decided to do is look at human history and point to 
about, you know, let's call it the 11th to the 14th century AD and understand that gold had already been the consensus money, gold and silver for the planet for thousands of years at that point. And gold was used on essentially every continent and, you know, gold and silver were used on every continent as precious metals, as something with monetary value, as something that could be used as jewelry or passed down generations. And it was because these two metals had, they had these properties, scarcity, beauty, divisibility, all the things that we understand about precious metals. So I tried to summarize that in a very, very short amount of time, you know, less than one chapter, and then go right to where humans started to use precious metals in the coin form, because that took the monetary use of gold and advanced it past, you know, I have a gold necklace and you have gold bars and we don't, I don't know how much yours weighs. I don't, you don't know how much mine weighs. Um, I don't know the purity of yours. You don't know the purity of my gold. It makes a transaction slow and um, difficult, requiring measurement, testing of purity, all those things. But if I have a coin with a king's stamp on it, and you know that king, and you recognize my coin, and you believe that it's hard to forge, all of a sudden, we can now do commerce more quickly than before. And that is a, it's a simple kind of common sense advance, but it, it definitely changed the world of money. And so that happened in about the 6th or 7th century BC in Lydia, which is modern day Turkey. Then we have examples of uh, thousands of coins throughout history that happened after that. I talked briefly about uh, silver coins in the Greek and Roman empires and then really start the story in 13th century Florence with the gold coin Fiorino de Oro or the gold florin. And the reason I chose that coin to really kick off the story of layered money is because the gold florin, which I learned in a book called The Economy of Renaissance Florence, the gold florin was the first ever world reserve currency of Western Europe in that it was the coin and the accounting denomination used in Italy, in England, in France, in Germany, and different places around the continent, um, all because the purity and the weight of the gold florin went unchanged for over 300 years. And when I read that book, it reminded me a lot of the dollar and a lot of Bitcoin, a lot of the Bretton Woods system, and a lot of the projection about Bitcoin as the global reserve currency of the future. And, you know, again, the dollar being the uh, current uh, global reserve currency of today. And it just made sense to me that this is where I needed to focus my research and start the research. And then I saw coins turn into credit money and credit instruments, which is we have a credit uh, money system now in the dollar world. And um, that story of coins to credit money was uh, a very important story to tell. So that's, I, I explained the evolution, the start of paper money in the 15th century, the start of central banks in the 17th century, and then cover some early American monetary history as well. Well, that's uh, going back. And 
you know, basically, though, you're saying, well, right now, the dollar is the world currency. There's no doubt about it. It has been for 100 years. Um, but uh, you're saying Florence controlled the first world currency. Um, so let's um, get back on that when we come back after these words from our sponsors. But I think we're getting ready to get into some interesting stuff here. My wife was listening to uh, a show of yours, the uh, interviews of yours the other day, and she was like, "Going, I didn't know all these people controlled money, <laughs> you know, like we did." A lot of people think we've always been the world currency for some reason. We'll be right back with that and more with Nick Baccia, author of Layered Money, after these words from our sponsor. So please stay tuned and maybe, just maybe, tell a friend. Call them up right now. Tell them to come listen to this or watch this. Gary Leland joined by Nick Baccia. Now, Nick, you were saying uh, that Florence controlled the world currency during as the, as the first world currency, I guess. Um, which is a lot like U.S. is in now. So maybe we can learn something from what happened to Florence as to what might happen to the U.S. So uh, continue uh, from Florence. Uh, let's go forward. Yeah, so in the 15th century, um, the money market was it basically didn't really exist. You had monetary instruments, which were, promises to pay florin and other gold uh, and silver coins. But the way that the global economy worked were they had these traveling fairs. And so if we think about, uh, you know, a conference or, you know, a financial center like, like New York or like Hong Kong, this is where people come to trade. At the time in the 13th, 14th centuries, there was no city where people went to trade. They traveled around the continent and had different fairs in different parts of the continent in different seasons. And at these fairs, these traveling fairs, that's where commerce took place. It's also where credit was extended. Money was lent by merchant bankers to you know, uh, complete transactions, and then debt was established, and you had these debt instruments called bills of exchange that started. But in the 15th century in Antwerp, what happened was the, uh, the traveling fairs became this one continuous fair where we had a lot of trade going on in Antwerp year round. And because you had year round trade, you had year round bankers in Antwerp that were issuing credit instruments. And then they decided that they needed some clearance and liquidity between all this credit. And so they started a money market, which we think about today, if you were to trade treasury bills, bank deposits, cash, that's kind of what was happening at the time in Antwerp. So we really had the first money market where credit instruments, bills of exchange, notes, paper money was all traded against each other without metal being involved, without gold, without silver. And that was a definitely an important moment in monetary history. It's the origin of the money market. And after that, we had the first central bank in the 17th century in Amsterdam. And that's when the global economy kind of uh, shifted from Antwerp to Amsterdam. 
uh, after a uh, the Dutch Revolution in the late 16th century, and then the Central Bank of Amsterdam, the Bank of Amsterdam, was the first bank really to be called a central bank that issued deposits that the whole community or society would was required to use in order to make transactions move more quickly. So, you know, I didn't have one version of a coin, you didn't have another coin, and we'd have to exchange. No, we all had Bank of Amsterdam deposits, which were called the Dutch Florin, and, um, or the Gilder was the unit name. And that became the world reserve currency for, uh, you know, a cool hundred years uh, during the 1600s as well. So we went from Florence controlling it to Amsterdam controlling it, uh, money uh, as, as we know it today. And then now, is it seeming like we're going on this pattern where every so often whoever's controlling the money uh, loses control of the money and uh, someone else takes over control of the money? Um, and why does that happen? Because that's still happening to today because we know that it left Amsterdam you know, we know the United States has it now. I don't know, did it make one step after Amsterdam to uh, England or, or, or more? Um, what's going on with this trail of money changing hands as to who controls the money? I guess whoever controls the money controls the world. I mean, to a degree, is uh, can be said. Yes, there is evidence that world reserve currency status lasts for about 100 years. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's easy to just project the end of the U.S. dollar, um, you know, because we're running out of time on that 100-year timeline. Uh, there's a lot of things that go into world reserve currency and a lot of geopolitical circumstances. So um, I think right now, the U.S. and its position in the world economy, it its uh, importance on property rights and its relative freedoms, I mean, its freedoms relative to the rest of the world are undeniably strong. And uh, the dollar is deeply entrenched in how the world works. So yes, it is the case that countries lose control of the world reserve currency, and it does correlate with power, geopolitical power. Right now, U.S. is somewhat at the height of its geopolitical power, and the dollar is somewhat at its most entrenched in terms of being the world reserve currency. And so um, I believe that the status quo is going to be around for a while, and it's hard to see any nation, let's say specifically China or the European Union, with their monetary union, um, it's hard to see either of those countries crown themselves with the world reserve currency in the form of the euro or the renminbi. And then we have Bitcoin as this neutral currency, but Bitcoin is still a very, very tiny fraction of the global economy. And when I mean very tiny fraction, you know, we're talking about uh, significantly less than 1% of, uh, of the global economy. And so Right now, it's the dollar, and it's not. There's not really a lot of room for uh, near-term speculation. We can obviously speculate over the next 10, 20, 30 years what's going to happen to the geopolitical power of the United States and what might happen to the dollar, how Bitcoin might 
replace the dollar in some ways. Um, but I just believe it's very entrenched right now. Well, uh, how do you feel that the weaponization of the dollar, like we've done with Russia and we've done before, how does that affect the dollar? I mean, uh, I am not a geopolitical expert or currency expert, but I would think that if I was other countries, I'd be watching what's happening and say, well, maybe we need to cut our reserves of dollars by 10, 20% and not be all in. Um, we've got about two and a half minutes left. If you could give us a little bit of your thoughts on that. You know, it's it's definitely something that's caused um, a lot of speculation in terms of the future in terms of the future of the dollar and the sanctity of the dollar and how many people are going to use the dollar. Are people are countries going to sell treasuries because they don't believe that uh, it's a safe instrument anymore because of the Russia incident? I don't really agree with that. Um, the reason is because I believe that most nations and political leaders are out there are not like Vladimir Putin and trying to, um, you know, be the aggressor when it comes to the dollar system. So, yes, it's somewhat dangerous for the U.S. to weaponize the dollar, SWIFT and U.S. Treasuries and Federal Reserve deposits uh, held by others. I mean, you know, other central banks deposits held at the Federal Reserve. But the confidence in the U.S. dollar system and the confidence in the U.S. as the home team. And what I mean by that is, you know, you look at countries in Latin America, Africa, or Asia that hold U.S. treasuries in their reserve balances. Are those countries itching to sell their treasuries, which would upset the United States and their uh, international relationship with each other? I do not believe that. And so because of that, I believe that the dollar, even though it has been weaponized in this Russian scenario, that that doesn't put the dollar on watch for death or end of world reserve currency status anytime soon. And in fact, when we look at price, you know, Gary, I'm a price is truth guy. I look at the charts all the time. The dollar has rallied significantly since the war and so relative to other currencies and it that's just the way i see it yeah the dollar i was actually surprised that watching the dollar it's up more valuable now than it was before the war so uh i i was not expecting that so we'll be back though and we'll talk with nick about that and uh a little bit more about bitcoin right after these words from our sponsor see you then And welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm your host, Gary Leland, now joined by Nick Baccia as he <laughs> drives down the street. Uh, Nick, we're trying to, we're getting this done one way or another. We're going to get this show finished. Nick has to be somewhere, so he's uh, moving along so he can be where he needs to be. Nick, I want to go over uh, the Fed a little bit. Um, you know, kind of like a lot of people are confused and they think Fed, but Fed, because of the name, the Fed is a part of a branch of the government where it's a private uh, group of banks. And I don't know if anyone even knows all the banks that are in it. How is that affecting us today uh, in life and in our currency? You know, I think it's an important thing to, to remember that the Fed is the bank of banks. And 
it's important because when the Fed is making policy decisions, we have to remember that they are it's the banks that are making this d- decisions on behalf of their currency. So the the banking system, the dollar is the banking system's currency. It's not actually the people's currency. The Treasury Department doesn't control the monetary policy. The banking the banking system does through the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve is a branch of the U.S. government in that it's legislated by Congress to exist. If there are changes to the Federal Reserve that has to go through legislation, I think that's also important when remembering that uh, central bank digital currency is probably coming here in the next two to five years in the United States. That will have to be legislated by Congress and the, and, and the executive branch. And because we have the legislation that has to come down, the Fed is still part of the government. And that we do have to remember that. But when we think about monetary policy, who is the monetary policy benefiting? And that has been, it's been clear to people that it's the banks, not the people of the United States. And I think that's, you know, what we have to remember about the situation. Is that why so much money during, um, gosh, I can't remember the years now, during our first financial crisis was given to the banks all over the world rather than to the people to spend uh, all over the, or in the U.S.? Because I always said with the amount of money they spent, they could have just gave it to everybody and it would have all trickled uphill as we all spent our money and ended up in the banks. But that's why the uh, banks got it because the Fed is the bank of the banks and that's who they watch out for. That's right. It, it's it's the banking system that was experiencing the problem. The people were getting fired as a result of the problems in the banking system. So the Fed is the bank of banks, and their job was to bail out the banks so that they could, uh, you know, Bernanke's called, <laughs> named his book "The Courage to Act," meaning that as long as we saved the banks, the people would get help. And I was courageous because I did that. So you know it ends up with a lot of, let's say, populism is the result of a lot of central bank actions these days. And that political dynamic is important to remember. Well, let's cover right now, you mentioned that central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. Um, How will uh, those uh, interact with our new monetary future to take a sentence out of your book? Yes, um, it, CBDCs will, is the next evolution of government money. So today, people don't use paper money that much anymore. We don't really use cash. And um, for that reason, the Federal Reserve has lost um, you know, contact with people. They are only really in contact with banks. And this would allow the Federal Reserve to establish more contact with people perhaps give them money directly instead of the banks giving the banks money. And it also sets up really well for universal basic income, which is something that has already started unofficially in the United States with, uh, you know, child, child tax credits and other pandemic assistance. And so I believe that UBI and CBDC will merge and uh, will be legislated in some way over the next several years um, at the at the legislative 
branch level. So you think everybody will have their federal government, their U.S. government uh, wallet on their phones? And uh, when they get their US, uh, universal basic income, it'll just go in there instead of a bank or if they're getting uh, money assistance from the government now instead of getting uh, different types of payments like that, it'll all go into one place. So we're routing around the banks and just directly to the person's private wallet that they'd use on their phone and they can just spend it right off their phone. Yeah, and it could be a U.S. Treasury app on your phone or a Federal Reserve app on your phone, or it could be just your Wells Fargo app has uh, a wallet for your Fed coins. And um, it's, yes, I believe that that's going to be the case, but also we have to remember what that might do to commercial banking deposits and Wells Fargo itself. Because if you pull your Wells Fargo deposits and put it into Fed coin, all of a sudden you are reducing the amount of uh, funding that the bank has in, in order to leverage. So when banks take deposits, they take those deposits and leverage them and lend money into the system. And if people are firing their checking account for FedCoin, that changes the equation for commercial banks. Now, the Fed is very well aware of this and so is... Um, Sorry, the Fed is very well at this, and so is uh, uh, so is the European Central Bank. So we'll see how these two banks uh, balance the relationship between commercial banks and central banks. So they've got to figure out a way to make FedCoin not kill the banks, basically, by routing around the banks. That's right. Or they got to figure out a way to keep the banks involved. Exactly. Or else, uh, so so do you think it's possible banks will carry the wallets and, uh, on their phone for FedCoin? It'll all be broken up to them. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 gonna you're gonna have a wallets on your phone with Bitcoin, FedCoin, Wells Fargo coin, and uh, you know it'll be an interesting mix of monetary instruments. Well, that'll be uh, pretty interesting there for for sure. That's going to be a change in how people use money. They'll understand Bitcoin easier, I guess, since they'll be using a uh, basically a currency, a cryptocurrency from the get go. Nick, before we go. Um, please tell people how they can follow you, find out more information about you. Um, where, where can they find you? Absolutely. Everyone can find all my links at layeredmoney.com. Uh, links to the book on Amazon, links to my Substack and my social media. Everyone can find everything I have at layeredmoney.com. Well, well, that makes it pretty damn easy. <laughs> Easy for us, Nick. Nick, I do want to say I appreciate you joining us on the show, and I know this was hard for you. Um, you had to be somewhere, and uh, timing was a little off today, but you stayed and finished the show even if you had to do it driving, and I'm glad we didn't have a wreck on the way home because your wife would never get your car to go wherever she needs to have it. Nick, thanks again for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you uh, in August at uh, BitBlock Boom down in Austin. Me as well, Gary. Thanks a lot for doing this, and uh, thanks for the time, and uh, really look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. Now, Nick has brought us some great stuff, and I can't recommend this book enough. Go to Amazon, Audible, wherever you choose to read books from or listen to books from, and get his book, The Layered Money. Believe me, it goes into way more detail than we could possibly do on this one hour show. But speaking of books, I do wanna cover another book real quick because I have a little bit of time here. Uh, 
Myself and seven of my friends back in November last year wrote the book Bitcoin and the American Dream. Now this book was written for politicians. It's a book that when you're visiting with a politician in DC or at your state senate or wherever, you can leave them this book and quick, it's an hour read, it will educate them on Bitcoin, but it also will educate you on Bitcoin. So this is an hour read. You might want to pick it up. Uh, go to BitcoinTheAmericanDream.com today and pick it up and see what you think. You might want to pick up two or three copies and give out to friends and help educate them on Bitcoin. But I can't say enough good things about this book, and it was quite an honor to work with these seven other authors on this book. Now, we're getting ready to go to a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back after that word. But I hope you did enjoy today's show, and please tell your friends about the Bitcoin Boomer Show. Even if they're not boomers, they might enjoy it. See you in a minute. And welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm your host, Gary Leland, and I do hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Nick, as I said several times, has written a great book. I recommend it to everyone, and I hope you've got something out of Nick's show. As I said earlier at the beginning of the show, my goal really is just to educate you on Bitcoin. We're not going to follow the show up with a commercial about how to buy Bitcoin from me. I'm not going to tell anyone how to buy Bitcoin from me ever because I don't sell it. Now, there are a few things I do want to go over real quick. Number one, I want to tell you about BitBlockBoom again. BitBlockBoom is a great Bitcoin conference I put on every year in Austin, Texas at the end of, at the end of August. Um, so go to bitblockboom.com and check out our great conference. Nick is one of the speakers there, and I know you'll enjoy it. So check out bitblockboom.com. I also want to make sure that you know if you live in Texas or any place close to Texas, you might want to consider coming to BitBlock Barbecue. We do BitBlock Barbecue as our monthly meetup. And guess what? We eat barbecue at BitBlock Barbecue. It's a chance for Bitcoiners to get together and talk and share ideas in a fun uh, atmosphere. So I think everybody enjoys BitBlock Barbecue. There's normally about 50 people there. So go to bitblockbarbecue.com today and check that out. Now, I am open for questions. If you have any questions you'd like us to try to answer on the show, please email those to GaryLeland at gmail.com. That's GaryLeland at gmail.com, and I'll try to cover those questions for you on a future episode and see if we can get them answered for you, which I'm sure we can. Now, I do ask you to do me a favor. Please share this show with your friends. Tell your friends about it. Tell your neighbors about it. Um, let's get them educated on Bitcoin. If you're listening to this as a podcast or on YouTube, maybe subscribe to the show so you can pick it up every week. If you're watching this on your television set or listening to this on the radio, remember, we do have this show on other options to listen to this show later in case you miss an episode somewhere. So do check those out today. And please, if you want to follow me and what I say and what I think, go to Twitter and follow me at Gary Leland. And actually, you can follow me anywhere on Gary Leland. I think I'm Gary Leland on all social media accounts. So please feel free to follow me. And uh, you can even send me a message there, I guess, and I'll try to answer you. But I am open to answering questions because my goal and the goal of this show is simply one thing, and that's to educate you about something we think is very important here, and that is Bitcoin. So until next week's show, 
Thanks for watching, thanks for listening, and we'll see you later. Have a good one.